0: You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. With me now on Commodity Watch Radio is Robert Wallace, the chief executive of Yellowcake, the first pure uranium investment company in the world. Formerly a journalist, he penned in September 2004 on the Mindsight website the article, A New Yellow Cake Age Dawns, the first article in the UK about the unfolding of the uranium story. Robert Wallace, hello, welcome to Commodity Watch Radio.
1: Hi there, Dominic.
0: Now, there are uranium companies springing up everywhere, many of whom won't ever produce any uranium. One of the brokers at TD Waterhouse said to me just last week he's getting more inquiries and more people wanting to buy uranium companies than any other sector. The shares in uranium companies are doubling and tripling. The uranium commodity itself has never actually corrected. It's only ever gone up. And I actually had one of my guests on this very show say... The famous last words, it's different this time. Surely this market is due a serious correction.
1: One day there will be a correction, Dominic. Uh, Like every market, there will be one. But that day is quite a long way off. Um, The fundamentals for uranium uh, have never looked better and the market can only expect in the future, uh, for the next um, five or ten years, continuous increase in demand and and not a reaction in terms of supply. It takes some 10 years from discovering a deposit of uranium to turning that into a production facility. So we know that well ahead with the uranium that there will be a continuous shortage uh, for some years ahead. Uh, The 2015 Demand and supply figures published by the World Nuclear Association show that the gap between demand and supply uh, scheduled for 2015 is over £150 million of uranium a year. So with that sort of background, I think uranium is indeed one of the best investments in the medium term.
0: I'm persuaded by the uh, argument that um, nuclear power is the only real alternative to burning fossil fuels. There just isn't the possibility with ethanol or wind power or any of the other alternative forms of energy. But it's by no means a guarantee that everyone is going to turn to nuclear power.
1: No, no. But let's um, let you and I uh, step back and let one of the founders of Greenpeace express this better than perhaps either of us can, James Moore, Um, as I said, one of the founders of Greenpeace, no longer a member of Greenpeace, uh, should I say. James Moore said uh, in an article in the Washington Post last year, nuclear power is the only non-greenhouse gas-emitting power source that can effectively replace fossil fuels and satisfy global demand. Um, Basically wind and uh, solar power, for example, are dependent on the weather. No wind equals no power generation, Um, whereas it is the base load electricity. the, The electricity that you need 365 days a year, 24 hours, a day and, and um, seven days a week, which is the one that nuclear power serves. Uh, it has to be available at all times when you want to switch on. It cannot be um, dependent upon the vagaries of the weather. And there is only really coal and nuclear power that can produce that, plus the fossil fuels in, of uh, gas and oil, which are very, very precious, uh, oil especially. And aren't really suitable for us to continue as a as a world um, to use up in power generation. Will nuclear power
0: be used in uh, the transportation industry?
1: Uh, that, well, when you say transportation industry, the only one, well, the one that has been used in since 1956, this was actually the very first commercial uh, nuclear uh, reactor ever produced, was in the SS Nautilus. Um, which is a, an American sub, uh, submarine. And that that submarine is driven by nuclear power, by a nuclear reactor in the actual submarine. So, transportation in that sense is quite possible. And indeed many of the nuclear submarines um, produced uh, across the years are still in, in very good service.
0: What about trains and cars and planes?
1: Um, not, not really appropriate. Um, Nuclear power is a very large scale operation and requires um, considerable safety uh, aspects built into it and it's not um, it's not uh, sensible to to have trains enclosed in concrete for example which is what a nuclear power um, station really requires
0: so these uh, the SS Nautilus does it have a is it, uh, it can't be enclosed in concrete that, can
1: it that was that was 1956 um and the shielding around the nuclear reactor in a, in a submarine is not built from concrete, no. Um, but on the other hand, it's uh, considerable.
0: How many power stations, nuclear power stations, are there in the UK, do you know?
1: Well, there are 20 um, power stations in the UK, of which 19 are operable, or operated now. So it's 19 reactors, and they generate one-fifth of the total nuclear power total electricity supply for, for the united kingdom
0: and are any more being
1: built um, no because current plans um, as carried out by the present government um, are not have not been published and there's no decision on replacement of the um, of those um, which are now, they were mostly built up until 1995. Sizewell B was the last one, but the other majority of the others were all, the last one built was 1983. So we are talking about um, reactors that are, are reaching the end of their uh, useful lives. And in fact, um, the last one, current plans, we'll see all sizewell B uh, retired by 2023. No plans have been advanced, firm plans by the government to replace those reactors. At the moment we're in a very very bad situation in the UK because 20% of our power comes from nuclear and that uh, that is all reckoned to be phased out um, in the next years up until 2023.
0: It sounds like someone's being a little bit short-sighted which is never an an accusation you could level at a government, or not an English one anyway. (laughs) Now, if were we to go down the French route, and uh, what is their percentage of electricity generated by nuclear power? Is it, is it eighty or ninety percent? Am I right?
1: Well, just a slight exaggeration there, Dominic. I think um, the official figure is seventy-nine uh, percent from fifty-seven reactors. And uh, unlike the British government, um, the French government has taken decision to build another reactor, at least one reactor, which is under construction, and um, uh, in- increase the percentage of power coming from nuclear
0: it's, it's not often you find yourself praising the French
1: um, The French have definitely got a march on us we import power from France as a country, France produces more electricity than it needs and we are an importer of it and it's remarkable to think that um, in Britain uh, a large percentage of our power is generated completely emissions free, but it's generated in France
0: hmm. So if we're going to go down the French route and uh, switch to nuclear power, how many nuclear power stations do we need to build, if only to replace the existing ones? Um, How much is it all going to cost? Where's the expertise going to come from? How long is it going to take?
1: I can't answer you exactly. One of the reasons is because the plan would have to say what size the reactors are. Um, The the latest um, nuclear station being built in Finland uh, is a 1.6 megabyte uh, sorry, 1.6 megawatt uh, station. Uh, most of ours are one um, megawatt or less. So um, a f- fewer nuclear reactors of a larger size um, would be more appropriate. The answer to your second part of your question is, that it is um, carried out by that Finnish station. It's, it's the fifth reactor in Finland. And being larger than the others, it's uh, increasing the generating pros- uh, capacity by about 30%. It hasn't, it's just being finished now, built by Areva, the French company, and it has been financed entirely with, without any recourse to the uh, government. Um, the next 20 years of electricity flow from that station have been securitized by a series of banks who put up the money, and the, the, uh, some of the largest European utilities, electricity utilities, have guaranteed to take supplies from that station for 20 years. And on the back of that, the uh, construction money has been advanced by private, um, um, the private sector. So there is no need for Britain to fund, as a government, there's no need for Britain to fund the building of new stations. It can be arranged by the financial markets easily.
0: And how much uranium will this uh, Finnish power station consume in a year?
1: Um, The average 1 megawatt station requires 25 tonnes of uranium a year. Compared to that, a 1 megawatt coal station requires 3.3 million tonnes of coal a year. Uh, involving enormous uh, movement and transportation costs. Um, but the bigger cost to the, to the world is the 7 million tons of carbon monoxide um, emissions which uh, that coal station will create, whereas the nuclear station of course creates no carbon emissions. Inside the, one, the 7 million tons of um, pollution, Uh, is uh, mostly carbon monoxide but on the other hand there is a a, a heady pollution mix including things like arsenic and strangely enough coal like everything else in the world contains a minute percentage of uranium which is not disposed of during the the coal firing process and a, 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 um, uh, a considerable proportion of that pollution consists of uranium distributed by a coal station.
0: <laughs> so the mother of all ironies. Now, you're talking there about clean coal or just normal coal?
1: I'm talking about normal coal. Clean coal is a wonderful phrase created by the coal industry. Um, it isn't a practical alternative yet. There's a, a lot of uh, very heavy scientific um, Um, effort being put into producing so-called clean coal. We don't have any at the moment. Indeed, um, some of the proposals from the coal industry are bizarre. Uh, For example, sequestering the uh, sulfur and carbon uh, emissions of a coal station and putting it in underground um, uh, um, oil wells or alternatively natural gas wells. So, so to, they, they, they recognize that you cannot, at this time, uh, create a thing called clean coal. And the proposal, therefore, is just to store the pollution underground.
0: 25 tons of uranium. Uh, how much does uranium cost per ton at the moment?
1: Um, well, it costs now $75 uh, US dollars a pound. Um, but the cost of uranium in the greater mix of things in terms of terms of the cost of generating electricity is about five to seven percent of the total cost of a nuclear reactor by far the greatest um, share of cost of a nuclear reactor is the depreciation on the building of the station and the actual cost of uranium is only about five to seven percent. So if uranium were to double from here to $150 a pound, uh, it still wouldn't be more than 10 to, 10 to 14% uh, or so of the cost of generating electricity. And even then, the generating of electricity is not really related directly to the cost of the consumer uh, at the end of the wire, because there's transportation costs as well. So even doubling the cost of um, the uranium used to drive, to drive the station wouldn't produce more than 2 or 3% increase to cost to the consumer. And in the meantime, by the way, nuclear power is extremely competitive compared to coal. In the US, the figures are that it's cheaper than producing from coal.
0: Let me ask you, with a nuclear power station, what can go wrong?
1: Well, there's only been two instances, serious. there have been some, some, some minor instances around the world, but there have only been two instances of, of things going seriously wrong. One of the greatest things about uh, nuclear power that isn't understood by the public, it has the best safety record of any form of power generation. Um, the, the only two incidents, of course, were Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania in 1978 where um, there was a nuclear meltdown, but the reactor design, even in those days, proved wonderful in that no, although there was a nuclear meltdown, no radiation escaped the three concrete skins of that building, and it was all contained in the first um, chamber, and none of it escaped into the outside air. Uh, I've read the transcripts of the, of the court case where some 1,500 people claimed they got leukemia and ingoing toenails and every other malady you can imagine from uh, um, that incident. And I've read the scathing remarks of the judge who said that all the people who sued uh, in that respect and all their lawyers um, were uh, to be heavily deprecated for bringing um, malevol- um uh, malicious uh, but uh, frivolous claims, because there was no proof that any radiation escaped that building. Chernobyl, of course, um, uh, in the Ukraine, was a different matter, where the, the station blew up and caused um, a considerable number of deaths. On the site, there were 31 people killed in, at Chernobyl, But Chernobyl was um, totally out of the ordinary. They were conducting an experiment at the time which involved uh, switching off all the the safety systems and withdrawing fuel rods from the reactor as part of an unauthorized um, experiment. And it was that that led to um, that particular tragedy. Um, Those 31 people still remain the only people who have ever been killed on a nuclear station. Uh, anywhere in the world at at any one time and since Chernobyl the world has had 13,000 reactor years um, uh, of completely um, death-free operation and it's the only fuel source that has that sort of record the numbers of people killed through coal stations um, is considerably larger than 10,000 even hydroelectric power has caused 4,000 deaths. Uh, that was through the bursting of two dams in um, in India during the period. Um, and oil and even oil and gas have had up to 1,500 deaths across that period. There have been none at any nuclear stations. It has the best safety record of in the last 20 years of uh, any power power generation source the number of, of reactors that are being uh, under actually under construction is 28 right now. But those reactors are a completely different generation to the ones uh, operating um, before 1990 when all the world's e- reactors were built. So the prospects are only better in terms of safety record going forwards.
0: I don't know if you've read William Engdahl's book, uh, Century of War, which basically details all the uh, oil wars through the uh, 20th and the uh, beginning of the 21st century. But in it, he suggests that the negative consequences of the Three Mile Island incident were deliberately exaggerated by a pro-oil American government.
1: That sounds excep- exceptionally... Um, um correct at that time and that those sorts of rumours and those sorts of um, uh, malicious um, um, emissions, if you like, from that particular incident have cost the United States dearly because it's still only got the 103 reactors uh, which it had at the time of Mile Island they haven't built one since had they done so had they continued with the building scheme um, which was which was planned, um, they probably have about eighty like france eighty percent of their emi- um, nuclear, uh, of their electricity production caused uh, through nuclear, and at that point, the USA would be a virtually emission free country as it, as it is um, only about twenty percent of the um, electricity production in America is nuclear, and their their particular coal uh, burning activities um, are a major cause of worldwide pollution.
0: And they wouldn't be in quite such a pickle in the Middle East either?
1: Um, when you, you say oil wars we, we are coming up towards a period when uranium will become I think a strategic um, commodity. Russia has already announced Russia you may know has been the provider of, a, of uh, some 30-40% to 40% of the world's uranium supplies uh, for many years, uh, by, by downblending nuclear weapons, their stockpile after nuclear weapons were outlawed, really, under the SALT Treaty in 1982. Um, and ever since then, um, Russia has been downblending the plutonium from its weapons to produce uh, um, peaceful nuclear material for um, uranium, in, in other words for the um, nuclear power industry. Um, Russia has now announced that it will not downblend any further weapons from 2012 for use by Western nations. It will in fact keep all the uranium to itself and uh, that it will build, 20, spending $25 billion on new nuclear stations within Russia so that it can export all its gas. At that point... Uh, the world, uh, the Western world, the European world, will be very, very, very heavily dependent on on gas from Russia uh, to keep itself um, supplied with electricity. And that's a very dangerous position to be in.
2: Um,
1: eventually, the people who control uranium um, will control the, the world's nuclear industry. And it's very refreshing to note that the biggest suppliers of uranium are Australia, Africa and uh, um, North America, China, uh, Canada particularly, and sources within those, from those safe, as it were, areas, uh, about, will amount by 2015 to about 64% of, of um, all uranium produced. Uranium mining
0: and the building of nuclear plants is going to boost demand for equipment and services. So what are the related companies that we should be looking at?
1: in the UK especially, with the decommissioning program of uh, some 20 reactors closing, um, represents a considerable sum uh, involved. And there are a number of world world construction companies like uh, Bechtel, etc., who are jostling for nuclear decommissioning work. I can't give you any names and uh, numbers personally, but... um, Uh, Certainly the decommissioning expenditure in the next 20 years in the UK and in in countries around the world where stations are being renewed um, will be a a very um, useful source of um, revenue and and profit which will uh, form a good uh, investment case. In in terms of supply, um, I I think we need to focus on uranium itself I still think that's the most um, certain and promising sector in which to invest in the years ahead.
0: But um, if only a dozen or so of the uranium explorers will make it to production, how do you pick the winners?
1: There are (coughs) some 400 so-called uranium-producing or or exploration companies around the world, and as you uh, said earlier... Uh, A lot of them have got very little hope of producing ever any uranium. Um, In Canada, they have this phrase, moose pasture companies. And by moose pasture, they just mean um, uh, anybody who stakes up uh, an area of tundra up in North Canada and says we're looking for uranium. uh, can't be classed along with those people who um, uh, have the right chance of producing uranium. Um, the reward for an exploration company finding commercial deposits of uranium are colossal. For example, if a, if a, um, a deposit is found with um, res- reserves, proven reserves, of 20 million pounds of uranium, which is not um, a, 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 an enormous number in the scheme of things, many of the top exploration companies have that capacity um, at even fifty dollars a pound let's say it falls to that sort of level long term that's one billion dollars of resources uh, and the, and the rewards are colossal many of the current exploration companies around the world have market caps under a hundred million dollars and um, the, the Uh, prospects for such a company are electric. How do you differentiate the wheat from the chaff as it were? Um, One of the best measures of all is that there was an enormous amount of research carried out in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s and much of this data remains intact and finding a deposit where there, uh, there were historically uh, proven reserves or not not, not reserves, but resources. Where, the, where drilling was actually done, and where there was an estimate of know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million pounds of uranium in the in the ground, um, where they are being regenerated, and where people are now going back to those historically proven um, resources, uh, is a very good first step. Um, for example. Uh, uranium, which is uh, one of the companies quoted in London uh, it has a number of deposits but in Central African Republic there's the Bakuma deposit which was completely explored back in the 70s and 80s uh, and reckoned to contain some 20 to 23 million pounds of uranium um, and then of course all the exploration was halted after Chernobyl because there was no demand for uranium uh, further uranium supplies at that time all, that, all those records remain, and if you're, it is only for I Euramin to redrill and reprove those resources in, in modern um, times, uh, and, and, and there's a deposit. So that's a, that's a pretty safe company to invest in, a company that has that sort of capacity.
0: We, when we spoke last night, you mentioned uh, the fu- future of nuclear power and what, what the physicists are working on, what's going to be happening in, in 50 years' time. Tell us briefly about that.
1: Nuclear power today is carried out by nuclear fission um, which is a a way of generating the power from um, neutral uranium. Um, Five or six countries including China, Russia, France, Britain, America, uh, including those companies and I think another couple of countries are working on a new replacement technology called nuclear fusion uh, basically the, um, the power for nuclear fusion um, is rec- is, uh, can be generated from seawater after 20,050, and that's very, the very earliest date that's been uh, reckoned to reach nuclear fission being tested properly and um, all, all the scientific um, investigations completed um we we could move to that form of propulsion and uranium um whilst it will continue to supply the existing stations might not be needed in the far distant future at the moment there's at least eighty years of uranium in the world um to to take us forward of of known and, and recognized resources so nuclears a long term um, uh vastly valuable aider to the world of producing carbon-free electricity.
0: Robert, it's been a real pleasure. It's been fascinating talking to you. Why don't you give out the uh, website address of your company and your ticker symbol uh, as we close?
1: We are Yellowcake PLC. The website is www.yellowcakeplc.com and um, all the details of the company are on there. Robert Wallace, thank you very much. My pleasure, Dominic. Goodbye for now.
0: You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. Andrew Ferguson is an investment manager for New City Investment Managers. His trust, City Natural Resources, was the best-performing investment trust in the UK in 2006. And his fund, Geiger Counter, up 94% from its launch date last July, specialises in uranium companies. And it's one of the only uranium funds in the world. Andrew, welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. Good morning. Now why don't you tell us about uh, Geiger counter how many uh, how many companies do you own uh well it's a changing
3: feast I suppose we're probably at around the sort of forty five to fifty individual investments in the trust at the moment and do you trade in and out or do you tend to buy and hold um A bit of both, really. We've got one or two core positions which tend to be buy and hold, where uh, the story is good, the story is developing, the companies are developing, or, you know, in the larger shareholdings, they're producing cash, so you you tend to buy and hold. Um, Some of the smaller companies, you are nimble, you're in and out. Particularly at the moment with the way the market's behaving, you're seeing valuations being pushed up to potentially beyond... What we might deem as acceptable, and um, half the trick of, of the job that we do here is um, not falling in love with stocks and taking a profit. Do you own Cameco? No. Had you, did you ever buy it? Yep, we did. We sold Cameco um, on the Monday after they put their announcement out. Uh, within the first five minutes of that, uh, the market opening post-announcement on, on the flooding of Cigar Lake, the market was asleep. Nobody actually really understood for 48 hours the severity of the problems that Cameco Um, And am I right um, in saying last week they said seven years now? Yeah, and the market still doesn't get it. And I think that the Cameco are playing a big company game with the market. They're not telling people too much about really what's going on, about the remediation work. We were meant to know in January. We were meant to know in February. Apparently we might find out in March. I don't know. Um, There's going to be a point where Cameco will disappoint and the market will overreact and they will sell it down and that I think will probably be the point that you want to get involved. It is still the largest uranium producer in the world and they do
0: probably have the largest asset base of uranium in the world and so there is a point that you will have to own this company. If their Cigar Lake property is so badly damaged are they going to be looking to start acquiring other assets, maybe some explorers with good properties? Well,
3: um, they actually, Cameco, have a stable and a portfolio of undeveloped uh, known uranium assets predominantly in the Athabasca Basin but on a global basis and I would guess their board are probably fast tracking various other projects within the stable at the moment Uh, and then I would say as a a different string to their bow they'll probably be uh, they'll be looking around at at some of the the smaller companies some of the developing um, explorers who've probably got good assets um, but uh, probably don't have the skills to take them forward
0: and I yeah, wouldn't be surprised if they do right, become yeah. acquisitive And that Cameco, that the market hasn't reacted to the uh, to the Cameco situation does that suggest there's a lot of um, speculative should we say incomprehending money in the uranium market at the moment? Um, <coughs> they did react, so the stock was at about
3: $44 the day that they made their announcement um, last year um, it took a while, but the stock drifted all the way down to $36. And on the back of the uranium metal, the physical metals rise in price, the stock's gone back up to around sort of 43 where we are today, I think. Um, and it's purely, I think, because you've got a higher metal price, which will potentially offset some of the problems of Cigar Lake, bearing in mind they are the largest producer in the world. But also, there are no other real names for the the... Professional investor to go and buy uh, of any size. I mean, you know, we've just heard an announcement this week of SXR and, mm-hmm. and Eurasia getting together and, and and merging. That forms a five billion dollar company. Do you uh, own both of those? I do. Yeah, um, which I think is great because you need to make bigger bigger companies for the, the the world at large, whether it be the sort of hedge funds to trade or or the pension funds to get involved. They, they they call a micro-cap anything with a, a billion-dollar billion market cap or less, So and they won't invest in them. So to, to, to push them up the, the, the scale is, is important. And also, I think, you know, there said say things like production and um, cash flow are hugely important to these people, which is quite right too. So the reason Cameco's stayed relatively healthy at the moment is because there are no other
0: companies for people mm-hmm. to buy, in my opinion. SXR uh, seem to be acting very dynamically. They're, they seem to be acquiring or looking or suggesting that they're going to um, acquire properties all over the shop.
3: Well, somebody has to. There's, there's first mover advantage to be played for here. Um, SXR have, have come from nowhere. They know that they've got to diversify their asset base away from South Africa, which they're doing because they've got Honeywell in Australia. Uh, they've got their strategy with the US. Um people who suggested that this merger is not right because of the Kazakh risk I was just I put South Africa in the same basket as Kazakhstan as far as risk I put it right up there so Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned I don't think uh, I'm not unduly worried by it I think
0: in in actual fact it's a a very clever thing. Um, Do you own a lot of aim listed uranium stocks or do you tend to prefer the American and the Canadian? Canadian? Canadian Canadian. Canadian. Um, We've got one or two we've got a, a tiny little thing called
3: Vein Minerals um, which
0: they're uh, interviewed on this show actually are they, yeah.
3: yeah. okay well Vane we've supported by way of the convertible and, and straight equity um, they're misunderstood they're perceived to be a silver company which they are they produce silver and, and uh, gold from their mine in Mexico which is great they have cash flow they don't necessarily need to keep coming to the market for money like other junior companies um, but they've got these breccia pipes in, in uh, America in the sort of Midwest I suppose it is um, which have got previous history; they've been mined in the past. The geology is relatively simple, uh, and I actually think they've probably got quite a few million pounds in the ground. So, you know, we've got involved with with them. The other little one that we own is called Uranium. Um, What's it called? Uranium Resources on Aim. Um, they have a fifty percent joint venture with a, a group in uh, Australia called Western Metals. It's the wrong price in the UK and in, in Australia. Um, the Australian 50% would equate to about an 8p share price, but, of course, the the, the AIM market's not sophisticated enough and the, the people involved in it generally don't sort of understand uh, the, the nuances of, of, of joint ventures, I don't think. Um, but apart from those two, no, we tend to steer very well clear of it, um, liquidity being my big bugbear. And spreads. Spreads wider than a mile. You can drive buses through most of them. Um it's unfortunate because the UK could have started the march, but I'm afraid that the Canadians and the Australians, uh, with their order-driven systems,
0: are uh, are very much in in control of this market. I find it a great. I mean, I I invest quite a bit of my own money, and and uh, it's just very hard to earn anything on AIM because of those spreads, and you end up putting your money into uh, Canadian dollars and and uh, Aussie dollars, and then you face the um, the currency risk as well as Everything which, else, which has not been insignificant this year alone. I well, mean. the Canadians well down, isn't it? Yeah,
3: it's gone from just nearly. Well, it's gone from two to wherever we are today, two point three or something. Mm-hmm. Which um, is not useful when you're running a, a big fund, let alone when you're talking about uh, your own money. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, how much money do you manage? Uh, as a group, um, Richard and I look after about two hundred. I suppose. Thirty million pounds
0: sterling. That's uh, that's the entire new city investment management yep. fund. But what about Geiger Counter? Geiger's
3: is today roughly about fifty-five, sixty million pounds sterling.
0: Okay, so and if we want
3: to buy Geiger Counter, where do we? What's your ticker symbol? Where do we look? Geiger Counter is is primarily listed on the Channel Island Stock Exchange, which is a regulated exchange, and it has a secondary quote here in London. Uh, ticker code is GCL. Um, and trades on the the international board of the London Stock Exchange. Uh, Any stockbroker can buy it. I see. And
0: um, uh, do you have a website?
3: Yeah, we do. It's all on the New City Investment Manager's website, which is ncim.co.uk, and we keep that up to date. We put fact sheets out.
0: Uh, For all the trusts that we manage, just a bit of market commentary and and the top holdings of each trust. And that your business is basically uh, investing in natural resources. I presume you are a commodities bull.
3: Um, Certain sectors of the space, yeah, definitely. Um, Obviously, very keen on uranium. Uh, Very, very keen on the gold price um and gold equities per se not so keen on certain base metals i think uh I'm, you know we we like nickel we really do like nickel just on a fundamental argument we like uh the zinc price uh and, and zinc stocks on the fundamentals little more skeptical about copper for example um but uh it's all really does the world keep growing if the world keeps growing, the metals keep going up. Well, not necessarily up, but they, they keep giving you
0: uh, sensible returns back. And does your city natural resource fund have uh, exposure to soft commodity prices? We do.
3: We've got a few plantation companies, things like uh, Anglo-Eastern Plantations, MP Evans, um, REA, which will palm oil producers in the Far East. Um, MP, uh, MP Evans is a bit more of a sort of uh, soft uh, commodity a conglomerate, but uh, no, the palm oil price is sort of uh, sitting at near all-time highs, around 600 uh, dollars, and um, yeah, I think we're, we're pretty optimistic. I think the other area we've uh, we would like to get involved with, but maybe not in these vehicles, is water, because I think actually yeah. water is probably the most
0: precious natural commodity sitting in the world well we're going to do a program on water so you must come back and we're going to do a program on zinc as well so can you talk to us about that yeah well anytime (laughs) um yeah i mean how do you invest in water it's it's i mean apart from water services it's difficult but let's not talk about that now we'll talk about that another time um let's let's go back to uranium what do you think the uk needs to do if you were um a consultant to one of the energy ministers what would you be saying to them now I think they've got to pull their finger out, to be quite honest with you. I mean, at the moment, you know, Uranium,
3: everybody's talking about the metal. They're talking about how high is the metal going to go from $75 a pound. They're talking about demand, but you've got to look at underneath what's fueling demand. Demand's being fueled by a new build reactor plan going on on a global basis. And you've got the Chinese, you've got the South Africans, you've got the Finns, you've got the Indians, you've got the Russians, you know, and that's a tiny little proportion of, of, of some of the superpowers in the world who are actually all building new reactors. Um, the UK will dither because politicians tend to do that. Nobody will want to upset the voters, and um, will be left will be left you know behind. I think they really need to pull their finger out and get on with it because the problem is the nuclear industry has been so unloved for so many years. There is a, a dearth of people. There's a skill shortage of people who understand and can make reactors Uh, the uk is actually blessed to some extent but uh, there's only four or five companies who can license the technology to to build new reactors and what will happen of course is that uh, everybody else will get in the queue first and we'll we'll be at the back of the queue and so rather than going through you know the, the the due public process, I mean the Chinese you've got to quietly admire them, they're just getting on with it they know they need the energy, the South Africans are getting on with it, whereas over here in this country it will take politicians many public debates and and, and hearings etc for them to make their mind up and it will be ten years down the line and it will be too late. And we'll be paying top dollar. We'll be paying top dollar we'll be 90% reliant on Norwegian and Russian gas imports for our energy needs, which is a first world nation which is apparently what we are, it's uh, pretty worrying really. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and uh, I'm of the belief that we might not be at, at or near peak oil, but we're at or near peak cheap oil. Which... I, think, I think so. I
3: mean, you know, I, I, I saw a lovely statistic in the weekend press um, that the, the Chinese are still only consuming half the number of barrels per capita that, that um, America consumes, for example. Um, you know, when, those, when that statistic, just for it to move a fraction... And sort of kilt with what we're used to in the West, uh, is going to have serious, serious impact on the energy space. And so, yes, I think I think the oil market's going to to sort of bounce very happily between, you know, wherever we are today at fifty seven dollars a barrel, up to you know, probably maybe down as low as forty five. But I think it's got the potential to go higher as well. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but my point is, we've got to move into nuclear power because of the fact that oil's not going to be cheap for much longer? No, I mean, you know, I mean the French have been laughing the whole way through the oil
3: boom because the 80% of their base case or base uh, load energies is from nuclear. Um, and they took that step back in the 1970s when the last oil chaos sort of hit and uh, they've got it right. So um, I don't really understand. I mean, the UK, I think, we currently generate about 15% of our uh, energy needs from nuclear. It should actually be sort of closer to 25, 30%. Um, and then the government can bring it sort of fandangle fan wind turbines and everything else in which are nothing more in my humble opinion than sort of you know glitz and playing up to the press or or you know the, the m p s and m e p s in in um, in Belgium because you need the wind to blow it you know (laughs) it it doesn't happen every day but
0: uh, they cost so much to build there's a million pounds each to build or something what's the energy
3: i think some some brain told me that the uh, energy used in making one of these wind turbines that we see is actually takes the wind turbine 12 years to generate so it would pay for itself in 12 years but you know it would probably be packed up by then as well so you'd have to replace it so I'm, I'm I'm skeptical about it and, and we're not building any nuclear reactors in the uk at the moment am I right? No I did read something slightly encouraging that they were they were they had put a tender out um, with a view to because the problem is with the nuclear fleet in the uk is it's actually getting to its its best before date um, they'll probably stretch it out ten years longer than than they've said, which is great,
0: but they really now need to start thinking very very harsh oh, sorry hard about how they're going to do it. And can you see a time when our cars and trains are powered somehow by nuclear power, be it by electricity produced by nuclear energy or by some sort of hydrogen? Do you see that time around the corner? I
3: could see hydrogen more than than everybody having a, a nuclear reactor in their car. I think that would be a stone...
0: Too far. Well, no, but I mean, you might get you might plug your car into your electricity yeah. thing at home, and your home electricity might be generated. Yeah, oh definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, it's
3: it's the only sensible alternative. Uh, it's a good it's a good bedfellow for for the hydrocarbons that we already use. Um, you know, it, it's it's. The, the big thing that the politicians will tell you about that it is greener and it is greener than, than burning fossil fuels for example but in actual fact I mean if I was a politician or the Prime Minister I'd be more worried about my surety of supply rather than relying on Mr Putin who you know whatever you think we all know can be unreliable as far as his gas supplies so or turned off at a moment's notice it's not where we should be as a country. I don't think you would, uh, you know, definitely want to uh, ensure that the lights stay on and you can keep going, which is uh, what nuclear, I think, provides because it sits on your own, on your own shores in your own country.
0: How are we going to cure this? And um, this isn't your area of expertise, I know. But how are we going to cure this ailment of short-term, voter-pleasing policies that we have in government? I think you have to go back. I mean, it
3: was probably before. It was before my time, but you know, you've got to almost go back and and do what the likes of Mrs. Thatcher did, which is stick her fingers up at everybody and just get on with it. Um, respect comes, I suppose, to those who who earn it. I don't know. I just, I mean, you know, and you know, the real people to blame are us. You know, your listeners to your program, because nobody actually gets off their asses and votes for change. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth of it. Politicians are, are a waste of space. We all know that because they they'll never do anything. To upset um, themselves or
0: their own little cocoon, but it's actually us who deserve the blame. But, I mean, who do we vote for then? Well, I'm not suggesting, I'm not telling you who to vote for. No, that. but I'm I mean, su- David Cameron's kind of, in many ways, another Tony Blair. Well,
3: he probably is yeah, that's the problem, um, but I'm suggesting that if we don't vote, we're not expressing our opinions um, and, you know, like Mr. Livingstone running roughshod and riot with his blooming, you know, little thiefdom building London with, you know, congestion charging and tanks um, you know Who's to blame? Well, we are as the voters for not moving him on. So, uh, do I don't think know who Amy- you vote for. I'm not suggesting
0: I've got no idea, but I'm suggesting that there's,
3: there's a job out there for somebody who's actually going to be a little bit more frank and
0: honest and open. I couldn't agree more. And um, do you think uh, the effects of living of Livingstone's tax might eventually hurt um, the city's place as the one of the world's financial centres? Do you think? Well. I don't think so for the time being though no. I think the city's actually far more powerful, than Mr Livingstone will
3: ever give it credit for um, i think mr who was the who's the Northern Ireland minister of the weekend Mr. Haynes came out and said that city bonuses should all be given to the poor you know I mean they're all- they're all clutching at straws really I think um, the city em- employs and creates a lot of wealth for a lot of more people than just those directly involved in it so um no, I think, uh, I think London's here to stay. It would just be nice if the lights were still on. <laughs>
0: That's a great line to finish on. Andrew Ferguson, thank you very much. Um, why don't you give out uh, your website address one more time so that people can find out a bit more about you. Yeah, the website's
3: uh, www.ncim.co.uk. Andrew, thanks very much. Thank you.
2: You're listening to Commodity
0: Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, is with me now. And, uh, Michael, why don't you give us the level-headed trader's perspective on the uranium market at the moment?
2: (laughs) Well, I hope I can give you some kind of a perspective anyway. Uh, Whether it's level-headed or not, well, time will show. Um, Well, I, I think there are some similarities between what we're seeing in the uranium market now and what we saw in the gold market last year. Um, And of course, remember in the gold market, we saw a bit of a buying frenzy as we went into the top in, uh, I think it was May. And it seems to, we're seeing some of the same signs of that now in, in the uranium market. Lots of people who haven't been in the market are jumping in now, and they're jumping in and buying, almost indiscriminately, they're buying stocks. So, I mean, I'm tending to look at this as, And who knows how far these bubbles go, but I'm tending to look at this as a selling opportunity uh, where I can take some money off the table in uranium stocks and put it into gold and energy stocks. Um, So where I have uranium stocks, I'm I'm really selling right now, intending to redeploy elsewhere.
0: You're you're convinced of the long-term case uh, for uranium, but you think we might be uh, on our way to a short-term top.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Like last year, we saw a a top in May in gold, and then we saw a pullback, and it lasted some months, and now we're headed back to, I reckon we're going to go back and retest that high and go higher. Um, And if we saw a pullback in uranium, it might last a few weeks at least, maybe a few months. Uh, I would be inclined to buy that.
0: Now, I understand you are buying, or you are considering buying, puts on the U.S. indices. Is that wise, giving the screaming runaway bull market that's been going on for the last six months?
2: Well, I I think it stopped screaming with uh, the same intensity that it was before, but let's step back for a second and and, and see what uh, I'm concerned about here. Um, We've had a long bull market. It really goes back to 2002 or 2003, depending on which index you're looking at. And that's a long time, 2002 to today is uh, what well, was October 2002. So we're really talking about almost four and a half years. Um, and if you look at 2003, the low would have been in March 2003, so we're nearly into um, four years. There's a four-year cycle. It tends to be one of the most um, reliable cycles um, that, that you, you can find. And, um, I mean, well, some people will tell you that it bottomed last year in July. I don't believe that. I believe that cycle has yet to bottom, and that we will see an important fall before that cycle's is over. Um, there are a number of very interesting um, predictions and forecasts from various analysts, and I can mention here Martin Armstrong, and there's a thread on this. There's a thread about Martin Armstrong, and I think you've started it yourself. Um, that's right, isn't it? That is correct. Uh- uh, people can read a thread on GEI about Martin Armstrong.
0: He's got the 8.64-year cycle, I think he talks about. Um, and uh, I recommend everyone take a look at the uh, Martin Armstrong thread on uh, Global Edge Investors and uh, look at some of the charts and uh, click on some of the links. It reads like a thriller, his story. Um, he's, he's currently in prison. He's been held in prison without a hearing for longer than anyone else has ever been held before. One of the key witnesses was assassinated under mysterious circumstances. Apparently the uh, CIA were trying to buy his computer, his predictive computer models, and he wouldn't uh, give them to them. But uh, anyway, he has a big turn date. He has an 8.64 year cycle, I believe. And his big turn date is late Feb, maybe Feb the 25th, 26th, 27th,
2: somewhere around there. Um, There's another chap called um, Peter Eliadis, who's an expert on cycles. He's got some interesting ideas. I won't go into a long uh, exposition of that, but uh, basically he thinks we're coming into an important top here sometime between now and May. And after that top is in place, it will be some years, perhaps, before we see higher highs.
0: How successful a trader has uh, Peter Eliades been? I mean, are his calls reliable?
2: Well, I don't know what his trading success is, but I've been reading his or hearing of his forecast for many years, and he has gotten it right. He's a real student of the market. Um, He looks back, um, you know, decades and even hundreds of years in some cases. And uh, let me kind of summarize what he's saying is he talks about from low to low high. So, I mean another way of putting that is he's talking about cycle inversions where if you measure the time frame from two important lows uh, to today, um, there's almost an equal time frame from the low to the next low. That time frame is equivalent uh, to the time frame from the second low to more or less where we are today. And he says a whole range of cycles are showing that pattern. Uh, I think the longest cycle he talks about, which shows that pattern, is of 78 years or something. But the point of that is that uh, when all these cycles are inverting at the same time, it typically means there's a very important turn coming in the market. Um, and, you know, we, we should have probably had our, our, uh, our cyclical low in the four-year cycle around about now. Instead, we're getting a high. So that suggests we might have one of those inversions going on. If that happens, um, it could mean we have a very sharp drop to look forward to. Now, I'll mention one other guy who's also a, a student of cycles and long cycles, and this chap goes back hundreds of years and even thousands of years, I think, I've heard him talk about. But he, he's a very interesting guy. He's come up with some very interesting forecasts, some of them being accurate, some of them not accurate. But he's a guy called P.Q. Wall, and uh, P.Q. Wall talks about... Um, a uh, sort of repeat of the 1929 uh, drop. And he says that, you know, there there is one date uh, or time that's emblazed in everyone's memory, and that's 1929. And he says, 12 months from now, there will be two. So he thinks we're going to see a very <laughs> sharp sell-off. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? But, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know whether to believe this stuff, but... Um, the thing
0: is, Michael, is that bad news is easier to sell than good news. If if you have a newsletter and you're going, everything's going to be great, it won't sell as well as the newsletters that go um, all doom and doom, doom and gloom. For example, Arch Crawford, who uses those, uh, who uses astrological, uh, he uses the planets in order to make predictions and forecasts about the market. I mean, his calls, he's made some amazing calls over the years, but last year, 2006, he was horrendously
2: off. Yes, it's it's true, and we have a thread which you know people want to see that on G and I. It's all documented his forecasts and uh, comments about them, and then eventually how wrong he got it. Yes, it is true. And but his newsletter sells well. Yes, well, I, don't, I wonder if it's selling as well now as it was a year ago. I doubt it. But, but let me come on to how i'm actually um using this uh information or these forecasts okay and i think that's important for people to take on board um well I'm, uh, my portfolio is is about um uh, 80 or 90% long um resource stocks and that's mainly gold shares and i'm shifting slowly slowly i'm shifting some of my portfolio into energy shares and i guess it's something like um 80% mining now, and about 10% oil, and 10% something else. Uh, now, amongst that something else, uh, I own some puts, and it's you know it's dwindled down because they've lost value to a few percent now. But basically, what I do is I've been investing, and this goes back even to Arch Crawford's disaster of last year. I've been investing a portion of my profits in put options. And I don't buy puts every day or every week or every month. I actually haven't bought them for a little while. But um, what I tend to do is I take some portion of my profits and I buy put options. Now, this has a number of advantages over shorting the market or selling my portfolio. And that's demonstrated by the trading uh, results that I've shown over the last year. And, uh, I mean, over the last year, I guess I'm up... uh, in one portfolio uh, well over 30% and overall something like that. Um, and that's despite, um, that's despite um, having lost a lot of money in puts. So what I'm doing is I'm taking some of the profits and I'm buying puts. Now why am I buying puts? Um, well, you know, I lose on the puts and the market keeps going ahead and drives my resource shares higher. Um, then I, you know, it's like losing on insurance policy. Um, you lose the premium. Uh, but you're still alive. In my case, I lose the options premium, but my portfolio is still alive and still benefiting from the run-up in the market. So um, that strategy has worked well. Um, I'm now thinking about um, buying quite a large number of puts sometime in the next um, few weeks, possibly during February, possibly as soon as one or two weeks from now. I'll start buying a large number of puts again and let's look at how the dynamics of this work um, for about two to two and a half percent. I can buy an at-the-money put on the S&P 500. So for $25,000, approximately $25,000, I can protect a million dollars of investment. So for example, if I have a $5 million portfolio to protect uh, for $125,000, I protect that portfolio uh now my particular portfolio tends to be more volatile than most so uh i might want to uh protect a notionally larger portfolio um, and so um, you know that's a small that's a small amount of money relative to the portfolio so if uh i spend $125,000 on puts and then the market doesn't drop, the market instead goes up another ten percent. Well my five million is now going up to five and a half million, and I'm ahead of the game. Even accounting for the loss of one hundred and twenty five, the five hundred thousand dollar profit leaves me with a nice profit of close to four hundred thousand dollars. So that's a nice return. Now if the market drops and my portfolio falls from, let's say five million down to four million, then I might make a million dollars um, from my puts and so that's what I'm trying to achieve I'm trying to achieve a situation where if the market goes up I make money and if the market drops sh- sharply uh, my losses are covered by the puts
0: throughout the 70s we saw basically the stock market and the commodities market go in a different direction but over the last two or three years basically everything's gone up um, and in the May correction we saw everything go down if we get, let's use the uh, the word, a correction. If we get some sort of stock market correction, which way do you think gold is going to go? And which way do you think the gold and resource stocks are going to go?
2: Well, that's a good, that's an excellent question. And I think we really need to think about three different, um, three different things to watch. One is stocks. Another is gold. And another one is gold stocks. And I tend to regard gold stocks as being somewhere in the middle between being gold and being stocks. So, um, you know, if gold and stocks go in the same direction, well, gold stocks are likely to follow both of them up or both of them down. But in a situation where gold goes one way and stocks go another way, um, gold stocks will be somewhere in the middle. Um, And I think we also have to consider what might drive the move downwards in the market. If it's fears of higher inflation uh, or evidence of higher inflation, then what we might see is we might see stocks falling as people worry about rising interest rates, and we might see gold going up because people feel that gold is the place to be if we're going to have higher inflation. And in that circumstance, gold shares might tread water or even rise when the rest of the stock market is going down. Um, Now having said that, um, we do have to keep in mind that since gold shares are are stocks, if people start getting hit with margin calls, at some point people might be driven to sell their gold shares simply to shore up their portfolio values. So in that situation, if we saw a 10 or 20% drop in the stock market, we might see gold shares sell off a bit too, but hopefully quite a bit less. So, you know, uh, it's it'll be interesting to see which type of drop we have this time. Is it driven by external events, which uh, leave gold flat or even going down, or is it driven by some kind of uh, story or fear that causes gold to go up while, while, uh, while shares drop? But anyway, I'm hedging my gold shares by buying puts on the general market, and I'm kind of hoping that uh, we will have one of those moves where I win on both sides of the hedge.
0: Mike, uh, it's been great talking to you, and uh, I wish you good fortune with your puts. Do you want to give out the website of Global Edge?
2: Yes, um, it's easy to find, easy to remember. It's globaledgeinvestors.com. Um If you want a shortcut uh, into the site, you don't want to type all, out, out all those words, simply type geibb.com.
0: Or there's a link from Mindsight. If you click on the Mindsight bulletin board button, that'll take you through to Global Edge.
2: Everyone's welcome, and uh, please come and have a look and join and even start a thread.
0: Okay. Michael, uh, hopefully I'll see you um, in a couple of weeks at uh, the PDAC in Toronto. But in the meantime, it's been great talking to you.
2: Same for me. Speak to you soon.
0: Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisby for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Kemp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at GlobalEdgeInvestors.com. That's GlobalEdgeInvestors.com.